You are listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, trains, and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25, equipping them to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved, visit forgeleadership.org. Now the honor to introduce you to our keynote speaker for the evening, um, Joseph Backholm. Joseph's a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at the Family Research Council. He combines his extensive legal, political, and policy experience with a love for the way that biblical truth cultivates human flourishing. Previously, Joseph served as a legal counsel and the creator of the What Would You Say video series at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, where he developed and launched a growing platform that creates short animated videos answering common questions about faith and culture. Many of you saw this on the banquet invitation. His, uh, some of you know his YouTube career began as a self-identified six-foot-five Chinese woman on the campus of the University of Washington. <laughs> and a series of YouTube videos exploring the logic of gender identity. He wasn't, this was his alma mater. These are smart students. He wasn't there to, to trip them up. He just wanted to see how far they would go whether they would remain consistent and answering questions about identification. At the end of it, he ended up being a uh, Chinese woman, but they wouldn't let him be 6'5", go figure. (laughs) He served as legislative attorney for three years and spent a decade as the president and general counsel of the Family Policy Institute of Washington in Washington State, where he managed educational legislative and electoral operations on behalf of life, marriage, religious liberty, and parental rights and school choice. He led three ballot initiatives in Washington state. We used to ask Joseph what the future was like since he was out there in the Pacific Northwest. I think the year 2020 sadly kind of showed that. He's a Washington state native who loves travel, sports, Seattle Seahawks, and whatever his kids are into. Joseph received his bachelor's degree from the University of Washington and his law degree from Seattle University. He and his wonderful wife, Brooke, have four children. And uh, last but not least, uh, he's been a dear friend and mentor in my life. And he's our our Forge student's favorite. He's always, six years in a row, been the highest rated speaker every year. I have so many people in this, speakers in this country and one in Canada who are always trying to dethrone him and never do. Hold on to his crown. And most importantly, today, my two-year-old thought he was like the favorite stranger she'd ever met. (laughs) Wanted her to watch Dora the Explorer with her, so go figure. Joseph, thank you. Well, Adam, you're kind. Thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm going to start off by praying if you don't mind. Father, we are just grateful already, and I feel like uh, we could be done already and just celebrate what you're doing and and the chance, the invitation that you give us to partner with you and your work in the world. God, and there's so many things that we uh, don't understand, uh, but we do rest in the knowledge that you do understand and that you're in charge. And we ask that uh, in our 
moments remaining tonight, God, that your spirit would be at work in this room and in our hearts, and that we would uh, leave here with a greater understanding of, of who you are and uh, what your purpose is for each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. This is, this is already... Oh, am I not close enough to the mic? You're not 6'5". Okay, I am not. I, I am not. Despite rumors to the contrary. And, and, and that was a sincere desire in my life. You can see that I'm nowhere near 6'5", but I would have given my left arm for it. Not my right arm, but my left arm I would have given for it. Yeah, um, you know, today... Uh, my son played his second baseball game ever. He's 10, and he, he, it's the first time he ever pitched. And I got to watch the first inning on the tarmac flying here because my wife had a, a, a video conference of that. And, and, you know, we have kids, and we get really proud of, you know, the things that they do. And he actually struggled. He walked the bases loaded, and then he got out of it. So nobody scored in, in that first inning. That was the only one I watched. You know, and, you know, where would you expect him to start, right? Um, but the, the pride that we feel as parents, I actually, I, I feel a little of that tonight um, because, and I hope everybody else does as well. Now, of course, I'm nobody's parent here, um, but I have had a chance to be part of every Forge conference that has happened and contribute in my own little way, and you guys also have contributed in your way, and together... We're doing something that matters because ultimately, you know, we can't take it with us, right? They, you don't get a hearse on, you don't get, you, you don't get a U-Haul behind the hearse, as the saying goes, right? And, 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 and you don't get to take any more time with you. The time you have is the time you have and what do you invest it in? And there's nothing better to invest your time in than people and particularly people that have more time than we have, right? That's our way to sow into the future because there's going to be some people here after we're gone and we hope that they're doing some things and we had some things that we contributed to what they're doing. And, and I'm just encouraged, you know, and I'm, I'm supposed to be the speaker, but I'm just blessed to be here because I already feel good about what, what, we've, what, we are, what is happening. And, um, you know, I have started nonprofit organizations and it is hard, hard work. And Adam and I had a conversation, I don't know, three, four, five years ago, whatever it was, right? When, you, when you're starting a nonprofit organization, you're like, you have many moments of like, you know, do I really want to do this? How long do I want to do this kind of thing? <laughs> and I gave him the advice somebody gave me when I was starting. I said, you know, about five years in, it starts to get a little easier. You, you just got to, you, you bare knuckle it for about five years and then it gets a little easier. And, and Adam, we had the call this year. He goes, you know what? You were right. It's a little easier. It's not easy, but it's a little easier. It's not like desperate mode at all moments, in all ways. And, and, and that's part of that is because we, you start to see the fruit of it. And then you have stories to tell and other people start to see the fruit of it. And they're like, yeah, I want in on that too. Um, because as the world crumbles around us, we realize that we have to depend on God and we have to equip people for the world that we're in. And I, I now work uh, with the Family Research Council. I'm a senior fellow there for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement, which is a long title. But really, the Biblical Worldview part of this captures um, my real passion. I've been in politics for a long time. But the reason I care about politics is because I care about ideas. And ideas impact people's lives. Good ideas impact people's lives through the better. Bad ideas have consequences as they say, right? And 
We have a lot of those in Washington, D.C. right now. And I don't know, I, I'm, because I kind of come from Washington, D.C., I don't live there, thank God, but I do work there. Um, and, and as we track these, I'm, I'm going to run down a quick list of some things that you might be aware of, and you might, if you cry during the reading of this list, it's okay, we understand, we're all with you. Um, but the, the things that are happening, and we, we'll start at the border for no particular reason. Um, but when it comes to bad ideas having consequences, we see very directly how incentives work in life, right? If you tell people that there are no consequences for particular behaviors, you're going to get more of that behavior. This is not rocket science, but it's something that Washington, D.C. has to learn about every other day. We vigorously defend the U.S. Capitol while there is no threat to the U.S. Capitol. But we kind of go easy on the southern border while there is, in fact, a pretty significant threat to the southern border. And all of that is, of course, political. We see what's going on in the military, where the priority of military readiness has been uh, subserviated, is that a word, to social policy experimentation, where we have every member of the US military being put into anti-racism training. And of course, everybody is anti-racism, but we know what's really going on, right? And this is what our military is spending its time, energy, and, and money on. Taxpayer dollars are now, once again, being used for sex reassignment because the most important thing we can do with our military members is make sure they have the opportunity to remove genitalia when they need to. <laughs> we are now putting men with women in the military because, for the same reasons, you know, equality and such. If a man says he's a woman, by all means, we're going to throw him in the women's barracks. What could go wrong? We're doing that in prisons as well. What could go wrong? We have lowered the physical requirements in the military for the same reason, because wouldn't you know, the science is telling us that men and women are having a hard time doing the same physical tasks. Right? So when we have one standard, more men reach that standard than women. No one is shocked by this, at least we weren't like for the last 5,000 years, but in the last three years, we've suddenly dis we, we are now surprised by this. And this is what our military is doing. Uh, we are considering the idea of COVID passports, where in order to be able to, uh, you know, potentially buy gasoline for your car, you're going to have to prove that they put something in your arm now. I don't particularly have a problem with people getting vaccines, this one or any other one. But the idea that your ability to engage in commerce, get on an airplane or otherwise live your life is going to be conditioned on, that is a problem that I hope is self-evident to everyone in this room. HR1, if you don't know about HR1, you need to know about HR1. HR1 might be the worst piece of legislation ever introduced in Washington, D.C., and that's saying something. Right? That is, that is really saying something. It, it would essentially be a federal takeover of all state elections. It would require mail-in balloting. It would require mass mailing of all ballots, same-day registration. It would authorize ballot chasing, you know, where you end up with one guy with 500 ballots in the back of his car because he's deliver, delivering them. It's just, it, and it prohibits the kind of identifica identification um, that would make it harder to cheat. In ballots. But why would this be done from the federal level? What's the advantage of that? The advantage is that 
it makes it much easier for people to cheat and win elections, and the consolidation of power. We also have the Equality Act, which is being debated. It's already passed the House, it's in the Senate. Is it going to pass? We don't know. We certainly hope not. What would it do? It would require conformity across all interactions with the federal government with a specific view of gender and sexuality. It would, of course, threaten women and girls' sports. It would strip medical professionals of their rights of conscience. It would reduce the number of adoption and foster care agencies by disqualifying nonprofit organizations that hold to a biblical view or a historical view even of marriage and sexuality and disqualify them from serving orphans and widows and their needs. It would threaten Christian colleges very severely. Any college that held to the idea that we will not put um, men in the women's dormitory or we will not allow same-sex couples in our married women or in our married student housing, those schools students would be ineligible to receive federal student funds of any kind, which means those schools would lose m many, if not most, of their students. And I've seen some assessments that over 50% of Christian colleges would close their doors if this happened because they would no longer be financially feasible. Another possibly possible, but maybe even worse scenario is that those Christian colleges would choose to surrender their convictions so they can continue to operate. But the government should not be putting people in those situations. Pronoun laws could uh, be associated with the Equality Act. We've seen them in the state of New York where they are now mandating that people use made-up words to refer to somebody if they request that you use a made-up word or, or risk up to a $250,000 fine. Now, all of these things will be much easier if they manage to pack the Supreme Court. And because I am very, very thankful that it was Donald Trump and not Hillary Clinton who appointed the last three Supreme Court justices. Every, literally every day, I am consciously thanking God that that happened. Because the First Amendment would be no more, and who knows what other horrors we would have experienced in the last four years. Now, the last four years was not easy, right? <laughs> but it could have been worse, I promise. And I'm so thankful that we have that. But if it is decided in the infinite wisdom of Washington, D.C. that we're going to pack the Supreme Court. Well, then, uh, you know, Judy, bar the door. Is that the, is that the saying? Katie? Katie, Katie. Katie bar the door. <laughs> Sorry, Judy. Um, yeah, right. Katie, Katie and Judy, everybody, actually, yeah, because Katie's going to need help. So Judy needs to bar the door with her because they just packed the Supreme Court and, and we are now rewriting the Constitution, right? But all of this, the, the, from the Equality Act to H.R. 1 to packing the Supreme Court, is all contingent potentially upon whether or not they revoke the filibuster. That's that one little Senate procedural rule. If that gets changed, then Katie bar the door. Because all of these things could be conditioned upon that, because they're not going to get a majority of the Senate. They're not going to get 60 votes in the Senate to do any of this. But if they change the filibuster, boy, it could be interesting. Now, some people hear this list and cry. Other people hear this list and they get really happy. I don't know if any of them are in this room. If you are, great. But there are some people who would see, hear all of this and say, like, yes, that's exactly how it should be. Why is that? Why is that? It isn't because we're differently, you know, we're, we're not necessarily smarter than 
people who have a different philosoph political philosophy and we don't have better intentions. What we have is different worldviews. We aren't dealing with different opinions, we're dealing with different facts. We're dealing with different facts, different assumptions about the nature of reality. Who are we? Where have we come from? What is the purpose of our lives? What happens when we die? Some of these basic questions. We are dealing with different facts. And I want to describe some of these differences for you very briefly and compare what I'll generally describe as a Judeo-Christian perspective versus a secular perspective, which is kind of a progressive perspective, which is now, and I'm going to bleed into a lot of critical race theory stuff, which is now kind of subsuming the progressive perspective. What are the differences in our perspectives that lead us to lead, see this list and have very different opinions about whether this is helpful or not? First is, we have different ideas about where our identity comes from. I'm going to compare the two different options. Is our identity rooted in our group or is it rooted in our creator? We know that our constitution says, and the Judeo-Christian perspective is, all men are created equal, they're created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, right? That our equality comes from our creator because our identity is from our Creator. That is the most important thing about you and me is that we were created in the image of God. And that gives us infinite value. There is an alternative theory that your primary identity has to do with your anatomy and your gender, has to do with the color of your skin, has to do with your sexual desires, your gender identity, that those things are your primary identity. Now what does that mean if that's true? If your group is your primary source of identity, it is naturally divisive. If I identify myself primarily by my skin color, people who do not share my skin color are something else. If I identify myself primarily by my gender, people who are a different gender are something else. We aren't in common, though we may have some things in common. What's most important is that we have things that are different. If I primarily identify myself by my sexual desires, by my sexual orientation, then people who don't share that are different, and it's naturally divisive. One of the many advantages of identifying primarily by virtue of the fact that we are made in the image of God, in addition to the fact that it's true, the other advantage is that it is naturally uniting. Because that's one thing we all have in common. And it gives each of us the ability to see everyone we ever encounter first and foremost as a brother and sister made in the image of God. Are there things that are different about us? Of course. But always secondary to the fact that the, that the, the, the most important thing we have, we have in common. It also touches on this idea of equity versus equality. Because when we are seeking equality, but we are primarily identified by our group, we are not seeking equality for individuals, we are seeking equality for groups. So the only way we can have equality is by having the same outcome, not for individuals, but for groups. And this is the logic that leads the military to say, hey, women aren't qualifying in the same way as men, therefore, we have to change the standard because it's unequal 
if women aren't qualifying at the same rate as men. It, it forbids us from recognizing the fact that we're just different. And that's okay because equity requires that the outcome be the same in every way. So one, the first thing that we have, the, the difference is what is our identity rooted in? Secondly, we have different ideas about what the primary problems in the world are. Is the primary problem our shared sin? Or is the primary problem oppression? That's what the left would increasingly argue. That's what critical theory, critical race theory says explicitly that the biggest problem that we face in the world is oppression. What happens if oppression is the primary problem? Well, the first thing it does is it turns virtues into vice. And you've seen it happen many times where calls for understanding, forgiveness, for grace are criticized because they prop up the patriarchal, white supremacist system that they're trying to overthrow. No, we can't understand, we can't listen, we can't try to find common ground, we can't forgive, because that, them, is the enemy. So any calls to say, maybe we should listen, no, we can't do that. We can't be quick to hear and slow to speak, because that's oppressive and it's propping up oppression. In the same way, it turns vices into virtue. I'm going to read for you something that you all probably saw online. A prayer of a weary black woman. And it starts, and I can't read the whole thing because I don't have time. It says, Dear God, please help me to hate white people. Or at least to want to hate them. At least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls, to stop believing that they can be better, that they can stop being racist. It goes on, but I'm not going to for the sake of time. You get the point. This, the woman who wrote this is a um, professed minister of the gospel. There's no need to minimize the seriousness and reality of racism in order to recognize that this is not the response Jesus calls us to for any disagreements, right? Vice becomes virtue because it's done in the name of speaking truth to power. Of course, we deny the existence of real truth, but we're going to speak truth to power because truth is personal. So when I say it to somebody, I'm speaking truth to power. When Jesus very clearly says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you. How many times should we forgive? Seven times? No. Seventy times seven. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The third thing we disagree upon, since we disagree on what the nature of the problem is, we disagree on what the solution is. Because the Judeo-Christian perspective, what Scripture reveals to us, is that the problem is sin. The problem is inside of us. And what we're constantly told is not that the problem is not inside of you. You're born right the first time, right? You're not broken. There's nothing wrong with you. It's the system that's the problem. And once we fix the systems, all the people are going to be fine. Why it matters. You can't have a good system without good people. This is kind of a chicken or the egg question, right? Which came first? Do good people create good systems or do good systems create good people? It's an important question. Of course, we want both. We want healthy systems that are just 
that, that achieve just outcomes. Those are also biblical godly goals. But what's the starting point? And one of the main differences between the left and the right, between a Judeo-Christian perspective and a secular perspective, is say, they would say the starting point is let's fix the systems. Let's fix the institutions. Where the gospel very clearly says that's a fool's errand until you've dealt with the real problem which is inside of us. But this explains, in part, our different views of who we are, what our primary identity is, what the problem is, and what we should do to fix it. Why one, one person can see that list that we read at the beginning and be terrified, and somebody else can get really happy and hope for more. Now, this conflict over ideas which I framed as kind of a battle with the church, is also a battle in the church. An article from The Economist this week talked about the Chinese communists' sinification of Chinese Christians. And what they're trying to do is make Christianity more Chinese. And that includes a rewrite of the New Testament, which is more favorable to communism. Because the Chinese communists understand that Communism is, Christianity is not particularly friendly to communism and they want the ultimate loyal of their people. They see Christianity as a rival. And so they say, well, maybe we could like blend them, right? We'll make a communist Christian version. We'll make a communist version of Christianity and then we'll sell that and then they can be both Christians but ultimately loyal to us. Now, we might chuckle at that idea, but I suggest to you that what's happening here in the Western world is not dramatically different than that the liberalization of Western Christianity. I'll read from you a tweet from Raphael Warnock, who is the recently elected U.S. Senator from uh, Georgia, who said this on Easter. He is Reverend Raphael Warnock. That's actually really important for what I'm about to read to you. He said, The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Now, I don't know how many theologians we have in the room, but the idea of saving ourselves is not exactly Orthodox Christianity. But if you believe that the purpose of Christianity is to achieve social liberalization, liberation, sorry, I said that word wrong. If you believe that the purpose of Christianity is to achieve social liberation, then there are things more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus. If you believe the real problem is inside of us in dealing with sin, there's nothing more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus, right? But it's not particularly different than the Chinese communists attempt to rewrite the New Testament so that we can blend communism and Christianity. Lest you despair, you might be encouraged by the fact that none of this is unusual, historically speaking. We talk about what's going on in China. We talk about what's going on in the Western world. The same thing was happening for the first century Christians in Rome. They were not killed and burned because of who they worshipped. They were killed and burned because of who they didn't worship. There's no king but Jesus. The Roman Empire was fine with all sorts of gods. They were pantheists. They were, people worshipped all sorts of people, things. But you had to worship Caesar. The challenge of the church is that they refused to worship Caesar. And that's where the problem came. And that's exactly 
what we're dealing with today, since Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? Is God who he said he is? Are the things that he said true? That's been the question for 5,000, 6,000 years. Did God really say? So none of this is new, right? And I think that's important to me on bad days when I read the news, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, what is happening? And I read all these stats about whatever it is, and people are doing things that I don't think they should do. But be encouraged by the fact that it isn't new, God is not surprised, and we all have a role to play. And that's why we're here tonight. And that's what we're doing, because the beauty of it is that though we are shocked and dismayed, and I, one of my favorite sayings, and I know some of you have heard this before, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? <laughs> has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Because an aha moment is a function of limited knowledge. We have limited knowledge, so we learn things and it surprises us. God does not have limited knowledge, so he's never learned anything. So he's never been surprised. So in the moments that we are most surprised, we can take comfort in the fact that the one who is in charge is not surprised. And he very much has us in control. And he never promised us that the world was going to be perfect. In fact, he promised us the opposite. He promised us the opposite. They will hate you because of me. We don't have to pray, love those who hate us and pray for those who persecute us because everything's going to be easy all the time. But we do have a job to do and we do have a role to play and we have a garden to tend. Adam used that language earlier. A garden to tend, to bloom where you are planted. We can't fix the world and the burden of that is too much. But we can plant seeds, we can pull weeds, and if we all just make the plot of land that we're standing on a little bit better, we all do that together, pretty soon the whole environment starts to look a little better. But when we all walk away from the garden because it looks too big, well, it gets worse. The goal here is not simply policy victories for religious freedom, family, or life. Understanding that this world will never be perfect. We work and pray for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And our goal in part is to heal the wounds suffered by a culture that has suffered the inevitable damage that results from incorrect views about identity, what the problems are, and how to fix them. And this is why I love Forge, because they are raising a generation of leaders who understand that our biggest problems are inside of us, not around us. They understand that identity is not primarily rooted in our anatomy or our skin tone or our desires, but in our creator. And as a result, they can recognize solutions that aren't actually solutions and help bring solutions that actually are solutions. Forge is preparing missionaries for a mission field that has long been neglected as secondary or disdained as political. They also understand that the world doesn't need more politicians. The world needs culture changers. What we want in this room, I know, is what the Jewish people refer to as shalom. It's often understood as a greeting, but it's much more than that. There's a reason it appears 429 times in the Bible. 
And in closing, I want to share what Alvin Plantinga wrote about Shalom that for me summarizes the deepest desires and captures what we all together want to bring to the world around us. And he writes, The great writing prophets of the Bible knew how many ways human life had gone wrong because they knew how many ways human life can go right. Excuse me. And they dreamed of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain, the foolish be made wise, and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would stream with red wine, a time when weeping would be heard no more, when people could sleep without weapons on their laps. People could work in peace, their work having meaning and point. A wolf could lie with a lamb, the wolf cured of all carnivorous appetite. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God, their shouts of joy and recognition welling up from valleys and crags, from women in streets, from men on ships. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight it's what the Old Testament prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire among enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. We are now fallen creatures in a fallen world. The Christian gospel tells us that all hell has broken loose in this sorry world, but also that in Christ all heaven has come to do battle. Christ the warrior has come to defeat worldly power, to move the world over onto a new foundation, and to equip a people informed, devout, educated, pious, determined people to follow him in righting what's wrong, in transforming what's corrupt, and in doing the things that make for peace. Tonight, we come together to bring shalom where there is none. We know that we can't fix every problem. Fortunately, that's above our pay grade. So we don't have to carry that burden. But we can tend our garden. If we do what we can, we can do what those who pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honors did for us and leave it better than we found it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. If you liked the show, please drop a review in your podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all our latest episodes. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit forgeleadership.org.